Welcome, welcome, welcome to the World History Podcast. I'm Mr. Hall. Today, today, guys, we are going to talk about some of the new technology that is going to be developed during the Industrial Revolution. So we're going to focus today on what does that technology look like, uh, what are some earliest of the early inventions, and what are some of the reasons why we continuously develop new inventions. So I want to start today by telling you guys a little bit of a story. Uh, when it comes to trying to en encapsulate and en thought how far we've really come as human beings with our technology, it can be really difficult for us to do sometimes. Uh, and especially for those of you like, like you, myself, um, all of, really almost any person on earth anymore uh, in, in modern society, for how much we've been exposed to in our lives and what we are so used to, it can be so incredibly difficult to see where society started from to get to this point technologically. And we also really overlook a lot of the social implications that come with all of that new technology. Now, we as a class are going to focus more on the social aspects a little later. Uh, today, we're going to focus on the technology. And so, like I said, this what I want to try to do is give you an example to help show you how far we've come and how fast we've come. So I'm going to kind of use some rough examples here. We're going to focus, I'm going to focus on light and how do we as human beings produce light. And, and we're going to use, I can use this as kind of a measure to show you how far we've come really in the last, I'd say about 200, definitely within the last 100 years for certain, but, but, def, but within the last 200 years, how far we have come as a civilization uh, and our ability to produce light and heat uh, is a a very good way to measure and to put in as an example how far we've come. So I want to start, the first thing we have to think of, what is the most simple way that human beings have ever figured out how to make light, how to make any kind of energy or, or heat, and that would be the, the burning of wood. It's the most simple object that we can figure out to burn. It's one of the most plentiful. It's right there in front of our faces. Uh, and for several hundred years, thousands of years, that's, that's really all that human beings in mass had access to. Uh, in order to be able to produce any kind of light or heat. Uh, so certainly there was not a whole lot of light beyond uh, the sun. We, we did not, we worked our lives around the movement of the sun in daylight because it was very difficult to produce light or heat afterwards. If we think about wood itself, if you're going to burn one log of wood, uh, and obviously that can be different sizes, different types of wood, so we're going to use some very rough estimates here. But one log of wood, I would say, burns and provides light and heat for probably about 10 to 20 minutes. And we can also think about the difficulty, it, the difficulty in lighting the wood itself and beginning the light can be a little bit difficult with wood at times. So if we look at what is our next best capability, what, what do we eventually develop better than just lighting a, a wood fire for some kind of light. Well, as we move into uh, especially the Middle Ages and then getting into the Renaissance time period, so around the 14, 15, 1600s, we start to see oils and fats being used more and more. That we think of like whale blubber and animal fat and different oils that begin to be used for candles. Uh, now, those, oil, those early oils and fats are not what you think of as your Yankee candle today. Uh, those types of, of candles uh, burned much faster, um, a little bit more light to them than uh, what we think of in candles today, but, but burned much faster. So we were looking at roughly 20 to 30 minutes of light 
from a candle, generally speaking. Uh, the next thing that we as human beings found and eventually produced would be things like coal and gas. Now, it is actually this time period uh, and during the Industrial Revolution, so around 1700, that we are going to really start to use coal and natural gases uh, like oil and so on to produce light and heat. Now, let's say we're going to burn a brick of coal. Now, I, it doesn't get too bright, so we're not necessarily relying upon it for light, but it does give off a little bit of light, gives off a little bit of heat. That one brick of coal, we can generally keep emitting energy for about 30 to 40 minutes. So you guys can see already, we, we have spanned like 1,700 years, and we have only increased our light-making capability by about 20 minutes. That's, that's impressive. That's a lot. You know, we have now doubled our light-producing capability, but it's taken us almost 2,000 years, and it only gets us to about a half of an hour. Now, the next major, major breakthrough in energy producing comes as a result of the Industrial Revolution, uh, is going to be developed in the very uh, late 1700s and could be heavily in use by the mid-1800s, and that is the filament light bulb. The filament light bulb could suddenly give you quite a lot more light than what we had seen from wood, oils, and fats, and coal, uh, and it can generally produce that light for anywhere between six months to five years. So within less than about a 50-year time span, we are no longer talking about minutes and how much we can produce light. We're now talking months to years. Now, the filament light bulb was the very was the common form of light bulb actually until very recently, until about 2010 is when we started to see the LED light bulb coming into play. So in the early 2000s, we now see the LED light bulb becoming used in mass. And those bulbs are usually good for anywhere between 10 to 20 years on the lower end of the scale. There are many light bulbs, LED bulbs that can last for much longer than that. So within another 50 to 100 years, we have over tripled the amount of light that we can produce from a light bulb. So guys, we have gone from the majority of human history, about 1,700 years, only being able to produce light for roughly anywhere between 10 to 30 minutes. And then all of a sudden, in the time span of 100 years, we have now just extended our ability to produce light to six months to five years. That is really the best way that I can demonstrate how much average individual life is going to change. So let's take a look today at some of the new technology that's going to come about, uh, why that technology comes about, and why it continues to keep developing. So that's what we are going to focus on today. And here we go. The one resource that this entire revolution from the start is going to revolve around is coal. Coal is absolutely the most important resource in the Industrial Revolution. It is what kicks off this whole thing. Coal is going to be what places the social and economic pressures on the Industrial Revo Revolution to produce new inventions. Getting access to coal is going to what's going is going to put pressure on us to create new inventions. And then transporting, selling, using, producing, all of these other you know, verbs in this process are going to develop 
new technologies, new industries, uh, and, and new factories and everything else centering around the digging, production, transportation, and use of coal. I can't stress that enough, how big this is. So let's start right from looking at coal. Yeah, think, how do you get, where, where's coal come from? How do we get it out? Well, coal mines. Um, playing a little bit of Blue's Clues here with you guys, just some simple rhetorical questions for you to shout back at me in your ears. <laughs> so with the coal mines, digging these up out of the ground, there's a major, major danger in those coal mines that some of you might be able to guess, um, and probably most of you are going to overlook. There are the simple ones, obviously the, the mines collapsing or uh, people dying from gas exposure, but let's look at this from a, a purely strict business standpoint for a second. Let's say your mine collapses. What's the solution to it? Well, dig it back out. You already have the human power and the ability to dig those back out. That's not really a problem that we have to figure out how to solve. It's a problem that sucks, our mines collapse, but we can always redig. Uh, okay, well, another problem. We've got people dying from gas exposure in those mines. Okay, well, uh, those people die. They're just miners, not that big a deal, easily replaceable. We can get another one. Again, not a big pressing issue. It's not shutting down the entire mine. But there is one thing that can, that can ruin a mine so that we can't dig it back out and we can't put human beings back in. And that is water. We always overlook the fact that there is water underground. You know, think about where a lot of you guys get your water today. You know, a lot of you have wells probably at home and you suck your water up from underground. That is sort of what is happening here. When we are digging for mines, we're digging underground and we're digging for gold. Sometimes we don't hit gold, but we hit underwater wells. When you have done that, the entire mine floods and there is no longer any way to get that water out of the mine or to put people back into it. Now we need an invention to keep water out of mines. So in 1712, Thomas Newcomen, a guy who works around mines, works around engines on mines and so on, creates this new type of engine to try to produce uh, better ways of, of protecting mines from these flooding. And, and we've have hand pumps before. We understand the concept of hand pumps, you know, creating a pump to try to suck things out, create that vacuum in that pipeline. Newcomen is going to take coal and expand upon that. He's going to use coal to heat water and then use that water pressure with a valve system and a lever system to produce what becomes known as our first steam engine that engine pushing on a piston in order to create a vacuum and suck the piston back down. When that piston is moving, it is attached to a beam, and that beam is then acting as the suction on the tube pulling the water up out of the mine. This is now the first invention that can pull water, you know, not by human hand, but by some other production of energy, can pull water from one location to another. We have just found a way to remove water out of the coal mine so that we can put our miners back in. Now, this is one of the greatest inventions. Uh, there are some people that argue this is kind of one of the last inventions uh, because really every type of engine since 
the coal-burning steam engine is just a steam engine, uh, just burning different things. But this engine that Thomas Newcomen develops uh, does have a lot of flaws. Uh, it, it physically, um, it is, it, it's dangerous, it's difficult to use. Uh, the vacuum that it creates in that piston is, is a very difficult um, and dangerous concept and when, when using a piston. Uh, and actually, I have a little video for you guys on the next slide that I do recommend everybody watching um, to show you why it is so dangerous. It's not really something I can kind of just um, explain here, but a great video to show you the danger that lies in it. Eventually, in 1792, James Watt, uh, again, another engineer who works on the Newcomen steam engines, uh, who fixes them and so on, and in his free time, develops a new and improved steam engine where he takes a lot of the dangers of the Newcomen steam engine out. This becomes a much more efficient engine, meaning that it burns less coal and is able to pump more water. So we're using less coal in the production of coal. That's always better. You know, that now we can sell that coal instead of having to use it just to get more. And then from here, trying to get access to coal, once we've accessed it, we need to start to figure out other things to do with it, how to better produce goods and how to transport this coal. Now, I've jumped all the way down to the improved iron uh, slide here. Like I said, there's a video on the one previous there that I do hope everybody watches. Um, but now that we are being able to get access to more coal, and the fact that coal is being produced faster is now making it cheaper. There's more coal in plenty, and plenty, and so this coal is now being used for other things. One thing it is going to start to be used for is to smelt iron. Uh, you know, we've lived in an age of iron before. Where we've been able to melt iron uh, and produce you know, these strong metals and so on. Uh, but one of the things that makes iron so brittle uh, and, and breakable is that we can't get all of the, the other dirt and stuff out when we're melting it and when we're, we're producing it. Uh, Abraham Darby is an individual who realizes that coal is going to burn hotter, longer, and better than any other substance that he has access to. And, and that heat allows him to melt down in the iron better and then remove the impurities from it. So in other words, Abraham Darby has just figured out how to produce a better, stronger iron, which is gonna play a huge role of importance because many of the machines that we are going to use to build, uh, that we're going to build are gonna be used to, or, or excuse me, are going to use this newly improved iron to be built. So if we think about this, why, again, trying to see how we're revolving around coal. We created the steam engine to get more coal. We then used coal in the steam engine to get more coal. So we needed coal to produce coal. Well, our coal has now made the production of coal cheaper. So we're using cheap coal to produce cheap coal to keep coal cheap. And we are just trying to keep it at a low cost and we are creating new inventions to try to get over some of these problems that we have. So the next big problem we're going to have here is going to be transporting that coal and now iron as well. Think about coal and iron. The biggest problem with these two when trying to transport them is they are heavy. Really, really heavy. So we have to figure out how to move these very heavy goods that we are now producing in amounts that we've never seen before. 
We have to figure out how to move these very heavy goods along very far distances. The further we can move these goods, the more people we can sell them to. The more that we are producing, it makes it worth it. Uh, the easiest way to produce huge amounts of good is over water. We've been traveling over water for years now. We've had sailboats and, and so on, and all of these boats we found are it's able to store or transport large amounts of heavy goods upon. Uh, it's easier to kind of get it through water. Um, there's going to be some other ways that we try to think of. Obviously, we can only use water so much. There's only so many oceans around. So there are other ideas that start to be developed, you know, things like what we call turnpikes. Now, you guys know what turnpikes are today. We have one here in Pennsylvania, and you got to pay to use that road. Well, the biggest problem with roads is that they need a lot of upkeep. The more you drive on those roads, the more damage you do to them. Uh, so these turnpikes do two things. One, now a private business owner who probably owned the coal mine and needed to move that coal from the mine all the way across the country into the town, and he probably owns all that territory, well, that, that really rich landowner is going to build his own private road across there. Other people, he's going to let use it, but in order for them to use it, they're going to have to pay. This does a couple of things. One, it discourages people from actually taking that road. The less people that drive on that road, the less damage that's done, the cheaper it is to maintain it. Uh, the other thing is that now we have an income able to maintain that road system. So it's not just one person constantly paying for everybody else to use. Those who are using it are paying for it. But turnpikes and roads can only do so much. We can only move so many goods so far. Water is always constantly in the back of our minds. And if, you know, we can't move goods using water all over the place, well, why don't we just put water all over the place? We start to develop canals. And these canals are this concept of just a man-made river. We've got tons of people now. We've got tons of new goods that help us be able to dig better and so on. And so we begin to dig huge man-made rivers where we are able to put large boats on and transport goods long distances through what was previously uh, difficult land deep into a continent to get to. Now, this type of, of travel, this type of transportation revolution is a very slow one. You can see it's different types. It's not just roads, it's also waterways as well. Um, most of the water transport that we see does take place along canals and rivers. But let's kind of, let's, let's turn our attention here real quick to steamboats. So when it comes to sea travel, uh, the first type of steamboat or a steam-powered paddle boat is going to be created by an American, actually. Robert Fulton, in 1907, creates the first boat, steamboat, known as the Claremont. Now, this steamboat is used to travel up the Hudson River. We, we, used, we traveled with goods all the time uh, up and down rivers. Obviously, going downriver was much easier. Going upriver, a lot of times, you wouldn't actually paddle your goods upriver. Uh, you would place them on a barge. You place your goods on a barge or a large flat boat. Uh, and someone would actually, you or mules or, or horses would stand on the side of the river with a big old rope attached to it and walk this thing all the way up the river. It was easier because it made the goods lighter, easier to carry long distance because we're using water. Uh, but when you're, when, you, when you're in the water itself, obviously we all know how difficult it can be to fight those, those currents. Uh, and, and that's, again, that human energy or animal energy is, is the best option that we have. Now with the Claremont, 
we have a boat that is able to travel upriver at a record-breaking speed of five miles an hour. Now, that's about four miles fast, four miles an hour faster than we were able to paddle upstream by human hand. So this is record-breaking. This might seem obnoxiously slow to you and I today, uh, but it is very efficient, and, and we are going to start to see this develop. Now, we don't see steam engines really change or expand in water, like, like for the use of sea travel, uh, really until actually World War I and World War II, uh, those pressures of trying to get American troops across the Atlantic Ocean and, and the Pacific Ocean in World War II is what puts the, the economic pressures on us to produce steam engines able to cross whole oceans. Uh, one of the reasons why we don't, it takes so long to develop a steamship across an ocean uh, is because the, the engines were so inefficient, you, you couldn't carry enough coal. Uh, for example, in, in the year uh, about 18, about 1850, about the year 1850, uh, if you were to take the most powerful steamboat and try to sail it across the Atlantic Ocean, so from New York City to, to, uh, uh, to France, you would have needed 10 additional boats of the same size filled to the brim with coal following that boat just to get that one boat across that ocean. So you can see it's just, it's not efficient enough. Um, so when it comes to sea travel, major sea travel, even through most of the 1800s, you're still seeing sailboats being used going across oceans. Now this brings us to everybody's favorite part of the industrial revolution. You know, it really brings out the childhood in all of us, trains. Uh, so the type of, of transportation revolution that we usually think of with the Industrial Revolution is actually the invention of trains and land travel. Uh, now, it, it's, it's interesting to see. Here, here in the United States, we got really, really, really big into canals for a while. Uh, Europe did canals for a bit, but they're going to jump onto trains faster and harder than the United States is. Obviously, we, we do have some here. Um, but the first steam locomotive, okay, so, so not steam engine. When we say steam engine, we're talking about Thomas Newcomen uh, and James Watt. Uh, when I say steam locomotive, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about trains. George Stephenson develops the first steam-powered locomotive, so the first steam engine on uh, like a, some type of cart. Now, this cart, though, had to be run on railroad tracks. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons being we don't have mass um, access to like certain rubbers and so on, so there's no ideas of putting you know, rubber to, to tires. Uh, we're still using like metal uh, on, on, those, on, those, on those wheels, so they run better on some type of a rail system. And, but the greatest thing about these, these railroads that are, are very quickly developing is that the tracks are now able to go where even rivers couldn't. You, know, you, you can dig rivers in a lot of locations, but now there's places like up mountains and through mountain ranges and other locations that we can put train tracks that we were almost guaranteed to not be able to put rivers or canals uh, or even a working turnpike or road system. So we see these railroads develop for a couple of reasons. One, we're producing goods in mass now, and we need to be able to move large amounts of very heavy goods, again, coal and iron, to long distances. Uh, and you also have to think about what are we using to move that coal and iron? We're using coal to power the steam locomotives 
that are built out of iron. So you're using coal and iron to produce and move and sell more coal and iron, uh, and which is requiring more coal to be produced. So this is what I mean. This becomes a feedback loop. I hope that you guys are seeing that, that we have more and more goods we're trying to get, uh, which then causes a new problem that forces us to create a solution for, which causes us to use more goods. And, and the cycle just keeps repeating itself. With train tracks, it's it, you can see this happening so quickly. Uh, you know, it's developed in the, fir- in the early 1800s, but by 1830, we're going to see the first major railroad line connecting Liverpool to Manchester. Now, that is roughly an equal distance of traveling uh, from about Williamsport to Wilkes-Barre uh, and traveling that distance. So when I say first major railroad, uh, this is the first major railroad where we see moving heavily goods back and forth. And also not just goods, but people themselves. Uh, most railroad tracks would have been, the earliest, would have been used maybe on uh, just in like mining facilities, um, on private properties, because again, still very expensive, very large pieces of machinery. Uh, but by 1870, trains have become so commonplace that they are now the major form of transportation all across Europe and North America. And a major form of transportation, not just for goods, but also for people. And we're going to, uh, I have a video for you guys actually on the next slide that I recommend everybody watch. It's just a little bit of a crash course on trains and, and how they affected the industrial revolution. Some of you may have already watched that video. Um, but I would recommend it. And it does talk a lot about some of the social things that we will talk about a little later too. Uh, some of the social pieces that come up with some of these new inventions. Uh, trains are something that a lot of average people were exposed to. Uh, you, you didn't have computers and stuff in your home in this revolution. But you, you probably lived close to and maybe even rode on a, a railroad track. Uh, and so that is going to change the way people are going to interact and move along as well. Uh, We have one more thing, one more type of invention that I would like to talk to you guys about. I'm going to skip ahead two slides here. So I've now jumped down to the slide titled Textile Industry, because again, the one just before this was a video that I do, again, recommend everybody watch. Uh, But let's take a look at a different kind of industry, because it's not just coal and the movement of coal and iron and things, obviously, that are developed in this Industrial Revolution. Those might have been the Kickstarters and the things that we we see the revolution revolve around. But there's all kinds of other industries that develop. Um, And the textile industry is is one of the earliest examples, also one of the greatest examples for this this concept uh, of this feedback loop that I'm talking about. Uh, The first thing that that we have to understand is, is what did we have before the Industrial Revolution when it came to producing textiles? Now, I hope you guys know textiles are, when I say textiles, we're talking about cloth. You know, like the fabric used to make like shirts and so on. Uh, I wanted to get that across because believe it or not, uh, and this kind of show you my own stupidity, uh, until I got to college, uh, whenever I heard my teachers talking about the textile industry, I honestly thought that they were talking about producing like floor tiling. Uh, so it was always kind of awkward on my tests when I just really did not understand the concept of flexible floor tiles. It really blew my mind how they were supposed to be able to bend and be easily produced. But now, uh, when I talk about the textile industry, I know a little better. <laughs> so the textile industry is producing types of, of cotton, or excuse me, using cotton and other goods to produce some type of, uh, of, of cloth. That's a very difficult weaving process. So through the putting out system, um, in, in the putting out system, we would see uh, each portion of that production would be done within a community. 
Because it's really difficult. If we're going to talk about the whole process of producing, a, let's say, one shirt from start to finish. Well, first, you got to plant the cotton. Then you got to grow the cotton. Then you got to pick the cotton. Then you got to uh, pull the clean the cotton out and pull it apart and weave it into yarn. And then you have to weave the yarn into a big textile or cloth. Then you have to cut that cloth into shape and then you have to dye it and then you have to sew it together. And then bing, bang, boom, like a year later, you got a shirt. This is a long, difficult process, especially for one person to produce. So what we started to see developing in this putting out system is, you know, within the town, you'd have one person growing the cotton You'd have another person uh, producing the cotton into yarn or thread. You'd have another person then taking that thread and weaving the thread into a textile. Then you might have another person who takes that that textile and dyes it using different products, usually stale yarn. Uh, Then you would have somebody sewing it together into a shirt. And and eventually, using these four, five, six different households, you can produce more clothing. Now, not enough that the whole community is going to be able to start opening a Macy's and selling their goods somewhere, but enough that they are able to produce for their own town. Now, one of the most laborious, time-consuming processes of this, this, this process, and one, at least the piece that we can control the most, is the weaving of the textile. So we've got a problem. That weaving takes too long. Let's find a solution. And this new solution we come up with is the concept of a flying shuttle. The flying shuttle allows the weaver to essentially kind of go in and out between those strings much faster in each direction. And remember, guys, if you're going to make a shirt, you've got to you've got to do that thousands and thousands of times, back and forth and back and forth. The flying shuttle allows it to, I mean, almost fly. That's why it's called it. Uh, and now we've got a new problem. Now we are able to weave clothing so fast, we are outpacing the production of yarn. So now with this new problem, we create a new invention. And this becomes known as the spinning jenny. The spinning jenny is, is one of the pictures you can see there on the slides. Uh, the flying shuttle is the one on the lower part there. The spinning jenny is a little larger picture. And that device allows us to pull cotton out into yarn much faster. So we can, we can keep, uh, we can help our yarn production keep up with our textile production. Eventually, we're going to develop the water frame. And, and all the water frame is, is a... Uh, a spinning jenny that is run by water power. So the spinning jenny you guys can see there on the slide, that's got a hand crank. It's still powered by humans. Uh, Now the water frame is going to be propelled uh, with a a water wheel uh, with water flow through a river or a stream, which is going to allow for faster production, faster than a human can consistently keep moving. Now, all of these things, uh, I actually, I have a video on the next slide that gives you guys a great example of what a flying shuttle is and what these pieces of machinery are and what they look like. Uh, now, that does, does a much better job than what I can go into to describe here of how these things actually work. But, but one thing I hope that you do notice is that these machines are really large. Uh, and so this putting out system that I talked about, which is done in people's homes within the community, as these machines become in more use, it becomes more difficult to use them in their small homes. Uh, and that's going to then create or cause the need for the creation of factories. You know, these big, massive buildings in a centralized location where we can put a lot of large pieces of machinery uh, and centralize the process of production. 
this brings us all the way around to what I want to finish up here with is showing you guys this concept of the feedback loop that we're dealing with. Okay. One of the first things we see, you know, the population increases. And I talked about that population increase in the last lecture. More population means we have more labor. When we have more labor, that means we're able to produce more goods. As we produce more goods, it draws the price down. When the price of goods go down, people want more. As we purchase more and there's more demand, businesses, business owners make more profit. When they make that profit, they invest back into their businesses. One of those investments can be people themselves, which will allow for people to live better lifestyles and produce more people, meaning the population then increases again. So this whole thing, whether it is the ideas of we have a problem, let's create a solution. Now our solution created another problem, so we create a new solution. And, and that feedback loop, or to this generalized population economic feedback loop that I have here on this slide, uh, it, we've just seen this rotating year after year, decade after decade, all the way until 2020. We're still dealing with this today. Uh, and all of the, you know, we have a problem, we need a solution, we create a solution that creates another problem. All right, so that's the end of what we have for this new technology piece. Uh, we are going to get into, in the next lecture, some of the social parts of this revolution and some of the social um, problems that are going to arise. We'll talk about where the Industrial Revolution begins and what nation. Uh, you guys should know that by now. Surprise, Great Britain. Uh, and then we'll talk about why it happens there first, why specifically Great Britain, and as it expands, uh, what are the economic and social issues that come up, and what are some of the things, how, how is life going to change because of all of this stuff? So, uh, this is our first lecture of the new year of 2021. So hope you guys had a great break. Uh, there should be another lecture out later this week. Keep an eye out for that. Other than that, guys, keep your name out of the paper, except for doing good deeds. 